If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 26 to 28. We uh, are continuing our series on uh, exploring our identity in Christ. This is a message that came by request. Somebody had uh, requested that we do, uh, that address the, the, the topic of being made in the image of God, that we are God's image bearers. And so um, I, would, I will say that if, if you have a burning desire for an uh, identity sermon that has not yet been uh, addressed or covered, um, I will entertain the, uh, the uh, possibility of, of uh, uh, speaking to that, of preaching on another one. Uh, so talk to me after the service. Uh, we're getting ready to head into Romans. I'm, st- I'm still gathering some resources and doing some background studies to, to get ready to preach through that book. So um, it's going to be starting soon, but I'm not, uh, probably not next Sunday quite yet. And so if you do have a, uh, a request, like I said, I can't guarantee that I will preach on it, but I will certainly entertain the idea and just talk to me uh, after the service or sometime early uh, next week. Um, so Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and before we read it, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, as we uh, come to Your Word this morning, I pray that You would fill us with Your Spirit. I pray, O oh Lord, that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and give us hearts to receive the truths of your word. May we live by them. May your truth be planted deep in us, that it may produce the fruit of transformation for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You may be seated. So I thought I'd begin this morning with a little pop quiz. Uh, related to Packers trivia, all right? So you know, if you know me, you know I'm a, the, a wealth of information about Packers, about the Green Bay Packers. So uh, there are, outside of Lambeau Field and Green Bay, two prominent statues. How many of you, by, sh- by show of raise of hands, know what those statues are, who those statues represent, those two statues? Wow, okay. Lots of Packer fans. Who, uh, the one on the left, anybody know what the one on the left is? Huh? Vince Lombardi. Yeah, so the statue on the left is a statue of Vince Lombardi, uh, who is the head coach of the Green Bay Packers in the 1960s and uh, uh, arguably one of the greatest coaches to uh, ever coach uh, in football history. Uh, the other one, anybody know who the other statue is? 
Yes, Curly Lambeau is the other one. Uh, Curly Lambeau uh, was a hometown boy who uh, founded, or at least uh, founded with somebody else, uh, I think there was two of them, that founded the Packers in the year 1919, and he became one of the greatest, uh, both kind of a multi-purpose player, both a, a passer and a runner for the Green Bay Packers, and uh, he was uh, one of the greats who has uh, earned a place in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So these two statues stand as visual representations of these men, and really beyond that, visual representations of, uh, of, of the legacy and the greatness that is Green Bay Packers football. As much as I hate to admit it as a Vikings fan, it's true. So these, this is what these images do. They represent that greatness. This is what images in general do, and this is what we do as image bearers of God. We put on display God's greatness and God's glory. Now, as we uh, ponder our identity as God's image bearers this morning, I want to begin by considering what it means to be made in the image of God. What What does it mean that we are image bearers of the living God? We read in Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, the words image and likeness, though some scholars have tried to to draw a distinction between those two, they they really are synonyms. They're just two different words that are used to mean the same thing. And and it's a pretty, it's a very simple, simple word. It kind of means in Hebrew the same thing it means in English. And that is that both convey the idea that we were made to be like God in some way. That is just the, the most basic kind of definition of what it means to be image bearers. We were made to be like God in some way. So just as a statue is fashioned in the likeness of the, the, the person or the thing that is being commemorated, so too we were fashioned in the likeness of God. We were created to resemble Him in some way. And this, in fact, is what sets, sets us apart from the rest of creation, that, that we alone of all created things are made in God's image. We are more like God than any other creature. This is what moves David to cry out in praise to God in Psalm 8, saying, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? So David is saying, look, I I see your creation. I see all the things, that the, the, the beauty of your creation that you have put in place, the works of your hands, and then he turns his attention to, to humanity and says, how is it that you, have, that, that, that you would care for someone such as us, such as I? What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So David is acknowledging that we are set apart from the rest of creation. We are crowned with glory and honor because we alone of all creatures have been made in his likeness. And so as those made in the image of God, we are exalted above the rest of creation. Now, the Bible doesn't really spell out for us exactly what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, There's sort of an element of, of mystery to it. But in theological terms, we can think of our image bearing in three senses. So if you bear with me, we're going to kind of wade into the pool of systematic theology just for a moment and kind of think about our image bearing in these three theological senses. 
So first there is what is called the substantive sense. <clears throat> that we are made in the image of God means that we are like God in our very being and nature. So there's something about our very, about our very makeup that resembles God. For example, we are like God in our capacity to think and reason. To a much greater degree than the animal world, we are able to think logically and to demonstrate creativity in, in art and, and music and, and science and technology and, and all these other fields and vocations. I, uh, I heard someone, I can't remember where I heard this or who said it, but I think it was on the radio or something like that. I heard somebody talking recently about about dogs and why it is that dogs are always so happy to see you when you come home. If, you, if you've ever had a dog, you probably can experience, you, you know what I'm talking about. You, you, you pull into the driveway, you come home, and it's like, it's like the best day of their entire life, <laughs> right? That you're, you're home, and they're just so excited to see you. Well, why is that? Well, the, this person said the reason is because dogs only have the capacity to live in the moment, so that they don't, they don't have the capacity to think and reason like humans do. They don't have the capacity to, to remember past wrongs or hurts, the ways that you neglected them earlier that morning, the ways that you, you know, just weren't there for them. And they don't have the capacity to worry about things in the future. All they really know and experience is the now. And so when you come home, all they know is that you are here now, and they like you, and so therefore they're happy. So they're not happy because you're so great, as much as you might want to think so. Uh, they're happy because they don't have the capacity to think and reason and understand how flawed you really are. That's, that's why they're so happy to see you when you come home. And so we have a greater capacity to think and reason than the rest of creation. We're also like God in our capacity to make moral choices. We, we have this inner sense of right and wrong and some, at least some capacity to act according to God's moral standards. In the language of the Westminster Catechism or the Westminster Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, we were made in true righteousness and holiness that we would rightly know God and love him. We are also like God in our spirituality we have a soul and a spiritual life that enables us to, to relate to God in, in prayer and in praise and in worship. And the, the, we are made to be immortal as God is immortal. So these are all expressions of our, of our image bearing in that, that substantive sense in our very being and in who we are. The second sense of our image bearing in theological terms is the relational sense. <laughs> God is a, a relational being. He exists, as we know, of course, in the perfect harmony of community and relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. We see this, uh, <coughs> this communal or relational aspect of God when he says in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. There's a plurality of being in God's nature. And so to be made in the image of God means we are made to share in this relational identity. We are relational beings, and we can only realize our full potential and satisfaction and joy in relationship with God and with fellow humans as part of our image-bearing. We see this, this relational aspect of our image-bearing in Genesis 1, verse 27, which says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The human relationship that most deeply reflects the nature of God by God's design is marriage. 
And so just as God exists in three distinct persons, equal in divinity and equal in importance and equal in glory, yet distinct in personhood and roles within the Trinity, so too God made marriage as a coming together of distinct persons, equal in in dignity and equal in honor, but distinct in gender and personhood and roles. By God's design, this relationship most deeply and profoundly reflects the nature of God himself. And so to be made in God's image means that we are made to exist in this relationship of of community and love, the most profound expression of which is marriage. The third sense of our image bearing is is the functional sense. Our image bearing consists not only in, in, in who we are, the substantive sense, and how we relate uh, to God and others, the relational sense, but in what we do, the functional sense. We are made to represent God and his rule over the rest of creation. In fact, this is one of the, 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 the primary, the, the key foundational aspects of our image bearing is this, this representing God in the way he rules over the rest of creation. God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness For this purpose, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. That we are God's image bearers means we were made to reflect and to represent his rule over the rest of creation. We see really the same thought in Psalm 8 where David says, You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. And then in the very next breath, he says, You made them ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. So being made in the image of God involves representing his rule over creation. In the ancient Near East, kings would place images of themselves throughout their provinces of of their empire. So all throughout the different provinces, they would have statues, they would have images of themselves placed here and there. And the image represented their dominion over that province. And so, for example, if a family is walking along and uh, a little boy sees this, this, this statue, this, this image, and he says, well, what is this statue here for the mom or the dad? We'll say, well, that statue is a, it represents, is a statue of our, of our great king. And that statue is there to remind us that, that this whole land is ruled by the king, that we are his subjects, that we are under his authority. And it's meant to, to show us and to remind us of his greatness and his authority and his rule over the land. In the same way, humans were placed on earth as the image of God. We were made in his image to represent his rule, to display his greatness, so that all of creation may see and celebrate his glory. And so to be made in the image of God means we've been made to be like God in our very nature, to be like God in, in a, to find our greatest satisfaction in relationship with him and with fellow humans, and to represent his rule in the world. But as we know from the rest of Scripture, we know how the rest of the story goes, and that is that the fall into sin has distorted the image of God in us. This beautiful picture of Genesis 1 and 2 uh, just turns ugly in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and then everything from that point on just just unravels. Uh, By God's grace, the image of God in humanity is not lost after the fall. Uh, we, We know that because God, again, refers to our image bearing in Genesis 5. 
post-fall and again in Genesis 9, saying that humans are created in his image. So it's not lost after the fall, but it is badly and severely distorted. And so in Genesis 4, we encounter Cain, who does not look like God or represent his rule at all. Driven by jealousy and rage, he, he kills his brother Abel. But Genesis 6, we see how wickedness has gripped the entire human race and how every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And so God's judgment falls on the human race in the form of the flood. The image of God in humanity is graciously preserved through, through Noah and his family. But even after this restart with Noah, the image of God in humanity is still broken. Because right away we see Noah getting drunk and cursing his grandson Canaan. By Genesis 11, the human race is, is back to its rebellious ways and they resolve to build the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves, showing once again that instead of ruling over creation as God's faithful representatives, they are now trying to rule as rebels. <clears throat> I've used this image before, but I, I think it's helpful, so I'm going to use it again. And that is that before the fall into sin, humanity was kind of like a mirror reflecting the image of God in the world. And the fall was like taking a hammer to that mirror and smashing it. And the mirror has been shattered into a thousand jagged shards. But, so it's been just completely uh, shattered, but it has not been completely obliterated. And so the image of God is still able to be seen in humanity through the shards of glass that remain, but, it is, but, but, but the image is, is badly obscured and distorted. And the fall into sin has affected all aspects of our identity as image bearers. It has distorted who we are. It has distorted how we relate to God and others. And it's distorted how we represent God's rule. And so there's a sense in which we are still like God, but his likeness in us is marred and veiled by our sinful nature. And of course, we see this all around, don't we? Just, just look at the world around us and we can see how, how humans are not living out or not living as God's image bearers, are they? In so many different ways. We see some ways in which we, we see it shine through, and we see lots of ways in which, it is, in which it is so evident and so clear that it is badly distorted. We see it in horrific acts of violence, like the 4th of July shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, which left seven dead and dozens others injured. One of the victims is an eight-year-old boy named Cooper whose spine was severed. After several injuries, he's still fighting for his life and believed to be paralyzed from the waist down. So we see it in, in these, it, you turn on the news and look at the world around us, we see lots of ways in which, which humans are not reflecting the image of God in them. But we see it also in, in a lot of small ways, just sort of the daily, day-to-day -day, uh, rhythms of life, don't we? We see it in sibling rivalries. We see it in, in marital conflicts and, and marriages that just a little bickering and cynicism and, and lack of harmony. And we, we see it in, in family system disharmony where parents are not respecting, or where par uh, uh, children are not respecting their parents and parents are exasper exacerbating their kids. We see it in hateful posts on social media. We see it in friends betraying friends. Not long ago, Lori was at Culver's, and what should have been a, you know, it's a beautiful day, pleasant, uh, you know, good food uh, out on the patio at Culver's uh, quickly turned into something ugly uh, because of a conflict that took place in the drive-thru. 
Uh, one driver was mad at the driver in front of him because the driver didn't pull ahead far enough, so he rolled down, he started honking his horn and rolled down his window, shouting obscenities through the window. And of course, that only made the first driver mad, and so he rolled down his window, started honking, returning, and yelling obscenities back out the window. And this went on, this back and forth for several minutes, just getting more and more hateful and angry. It was just another little reminder of how ugly humanity can be. There was just, there was nothing in that display, in that interchange that even remotely looked like God. As the teacher said in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, God made people good, but they have found all kinds of ways to be bad. So sin has distorted our image bearing in the substantive sense and in the relational sense and also in the functional sense. We do not rule over creation in ways that reflect God's rule as king. We exploit the earth for selfish gain and profit. We trample over others to exalt ourselves. We put power over justice. We see it in corrupt farming practices that perpetuate the mistreatment of animals and the exploitation of God's creation. We see it in the tyrannical rule of dictators that leaves, leave countries poverty-stricken and terrorized. We see it in careless acts of pollution and destruction that vandalize the earth, ignoring our cultural mandate to care for the earth and preserve it. This is what the fall into sin has done to our image-bearing. Like shattered mirrors, we all bear a badly broken resemblance to the God who made us. And all throughout the Old Testament, there is this this longing and expectation for someone to make that, that broken mirror whole again. For someone to restore in us the image of God that has so clearly been so badly distorted. And of course, as we know, that longing and expectation finds its fulfillment in Christ. For Christ was born as the true human, the second Adam, who bore in his being the perfect image of God, which is why Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 15 that the Son is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews says the Son is the the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So here at last is the untarnished image of God in human flesh, the one who sums up all that humanity is meant to be. He is fully and truly human in every way, but with one critical distinction that sets him apart from all other humans, and that is, as the writer of Hebrews put it, yet he did not sin. And not only is Christ himself the in his own being, the perfect image of God, but he came to restore the image of God in us and those who belong to God through faith in Christ. So Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 10 that we who have been raised with Christ have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And again in Ephesians 4, he says that in Christ we put on the new self which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And this work of restoring the image of God in us is a work of ongoing progress, of of growth, growing ever more into his likeness. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, that we are being transformed into the image of God with ever-increasing glory. The promise of the New Testament is that through the redemptive work of Christ that the perfect image of God will be 
fully restored in us. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that is Adam, so he says, shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, that is Christ. In Christ, our identity as God's image bearers is being redeemed. And in the end, when Christ returns, the image of God that has been distorted in the fall will at that time be fully restored. And so John says, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So our identity as image bearers was badly distorted by the fall, but Christ has come to redeem what was broken in those who receive him. And that's a critical distinction, by the way, that that restoring of the image of God in us is for believers, for those who, who, have, who belong to God, whom God has called and chosen for himself. It is, it is only those who are in Christ in whom the Holy Spirit is working to transform them evermore into the image of God. And so we can expect believers to look more like God than unbelievers. We can expect unbelievers to continue to reflect that badly distorted image of God, and we would expect better of ourselves to look more and more like Christ. So from this biblical picture of our identity as God's image bears, let me leave you this morning really briefly with three applications. Number one, we are to treat all humans with dignity and respect. The image of God in humankind is universal, even in those who, who are fallen and unredeemed. <clears throat> it cuts across all races, all cultures, all ages, and all abilities. And this has major implications then for how we treat others, doesn't it? It means that there is an inherent sanctity to human life. And so we hold all humans in high regard, from the unborn to the elderly, from the, the, the meth addicts to, to, uh, to anybody else that you can think of. All humans we hold in high regard. Our identity as image bearers leaves no room for racism because there is no race that has a greater claim on God's image than another. And it leaves no room for abortion because the unborn... Regardless of what our culture says, the unborn have been, according to Scripture, as the psalmist says, knit together by the hand of God and are fearfully and wonderfully made in His image after His likeness. And so to violate human life, whether in destructive speech like insults and gossip and slander or in destructive actions like abortion and sex trafficking and violence is to violate that which most resembles God. We are to treat all humans with dignity and respect. Number two, we are to be caretakers of God's creation. If part of our identity as image bearers is representing God's rule over creation, then we ought to rule with benevolence and care. As Vinoth Ramakandra has said, all human beings are called to represent God's kingship through the whole range of human life on earth. And God's rule is not the rule of a despot, but the loving nurture of a, of a caring parent. As vice regents of God's creation, we have a responsibility to treat creation with care. And so it is part of, it's part of our image bearing to plant trees and to support uh, earth-friendly and sustainable farming practices 
to do our part to reduce pollution, to preserve wildlife habitat, to strive for a biblically driven justice in nations and communities. Number three, we are to exalt Christ as Redeemer in the fullest sense of the word. In other words, Christ came not only to save us from our sin, which we, we, we so often focus only on that, that we are forgiven in Christ, our sins are forgiven in Christ, absolutely. But there's more to his redemption than that. He came not only to save us from our sin, but to fully restore the image of God in us, and in so doing, to redeem all of creation. The Apostle Paul said, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In other words, creation has been sort of uh, drawn, taken down on the coattails of human sin, and in humanity's redemption will come the redemption of all of creation. And so Paul goes on to say that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, waiting eagerly for this day of redemption. We are to exalt Christ as Redeemer in the fullest sense of the word. One theologian sums it up this way. He says, God put his wonderful world into human hands. Those human hands messed up the project, and the human hands of Christ have now picked it up sorted it out and got it back on track. And there is at last, he says, an unblemished human at the helm of the universe. All glory be to Christ. So outside of Lambeau Field, there are two statues that put on display the greatness of Green Bay football. As image bearers of God, we are meant for something far greater than that. We are meant to put on display the greatness and the glory of our God. Our image bearing has been distorted by sin, but it is being redeemed in Christ. And so let us go from here as living replicas of the Almighty, bearing witness to the glory of our Redeemer. Let's bow together. O Lord, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer and response, I pray, O Lord, that you would work within us a deeper wonder over our image bearing, that we have been made in the likeness of God, and that the image of God in us is being restored even now for those who are believers and have true faith in Christ is being restored more completely with ever-increasing glory to the full image of God in us. Oh, Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have spurned and neglected and failed to live out our image-bearing and show us again the wonder of what it means to be made in the image of God. Lord, hear our silent prayers this morning.
Heavenly Father, when the world tells us in so many ways that we don't measure up, we know through your word who we really are in Christ. And we are those who have been made in the image of the living God. And Lord, though that image in us has been badly distorted by the fall into sin, we praise you, O Lord, that we have a Redeemer, that Christ has been sent to redeem us and to restore in us the image of God for those who belong to him and receive him in true faith so that we can say with the Apostle Paul that we have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Oh Lord, we praise you for our great Redeemer, Christ, in whom and through whom, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the image of God in us is being restored. And one day, we will be like him and most fully and truly human we shall see him as he is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.